On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with them, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we ask this question, who is this? That wind and sea obey him. And Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts and our minds the vision of our Lord Jesus who rules over all creation and reconciles all things to you. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. It's difficult to really criticize the disciples Jesus takes them on a journey across the sea. They are to go to the other side, which was Gentile territory. They probably already had questions, what exactly was he up to? And here they are in the sea, and a massive storm threatens to swamp their small boat. And where's Jesus? He's asleep on the cushion. This is in the rear of the boat. He's simply beneath the deck, and he is asleep. They think everything is about to come undone for them. They will certainly drown. And so they ask the question, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? Their lives are on the brink, and they're asking God whether he cares. And friends, our lives are filled with that same kind of uncertainty and fear that the disciples met that night. In the middle of the night, here they are, panicked with fear, all kinds of uncertainty, not knowing whether they would survive the night. And our lives have that same kind of fear. There are many times where we feel that we will be swamped as well, that we're going to sink that life is simply going to get the best of us, that we have fears and we have anxieties. We have our mortality. There's sickness. There are children. There's so much to worry about. There's so much incredible complexity and uncertainty to life that we ask that same question in our hearts. Do you care that we're perishing? We wonder whether God is awake, whether He's asleep. We wonder whether He cares. But one of the remarkable things that we learn from these disciples is we learn about what it means to persevere as a Christian through adversity. Because we see here that Jesus leads the disciples into the storm. He has a purpose for this. He was the one who chose to cross the sea. He took them straight into the storm, and He is to teach them something about adversity. Because there was a lesson to learn for the disciples, and there's a lesson for the church throughout the ages 
about what it means to face crisis, what it means to face adversity, what it means to face our mortality, how we can face all the uncertainties of life in a broken and fallen world. And so what happens to us in crisis? Why does Jesus lead us just into the heart of crisis? Why does he take us into that feeling of weakness? And there's three things that we'll look at this morning. But first is simply it is this, that in crisis we expose our deepest suspicions. You hear it in the words of the disciples. Do you not care that we are perishing? They've been with Jesus. They've seen him work powerful miracles. They've listened to his teaching. They understand that Jesus is not just ordinary. They're still attempting to put it together exactly who he is and all the power that he possesses. But in this moment, when everything is on the rocks, when nothing seems stable, when nothing is firm, they reveal their deepest suspicions about Jesus and about God. Do you care? Do you really care that we are perishing? And friends, when we meet the rigor of life and we meet the hardships that can easily befall us in a broken and fallen world, it's a very natural question. We get critical. We get angry. Our hearts are filled with self-pity. And we have to find something to blame. We're like the disciples in the small craft out on the sea. It may be cancer. It may be a rebellious child. It may be just the threat of mortality from disease. It may be our retirement fund. Whatever it is that strikes fear in our hearts. These types of situations bring out our deepest suspicions as to whether God is really good. Is God really loving? C.S. Lewis, after his conversion, he married. He was a lifelong bachelor many, many years, and then he finally marries Joy Davidman. Their marriage was rather short. She got cancer, and she died in 1960. Lewis then writes perhaps his most hasty and honest and raw book. It's published under the title, A Grief Observed. Listen to what he says. Sooner or later, I must face the question in plain language. What reason have we except our own desperate wishes to believe that God is, by any standard we can conceive, good? Doesn't all the evidence suggest exactly the opposite? What have we to set against it? And Lewis calls this the dark night of his own soul, of his own experience, as he grieves the loss of his wife. And it's what the disciples were asking as well. It's the deepest suspicion that God isn't good, that God isn't loving. And friends, this is what happens to us in crisis. That when we are really honest, we're dr driven to this moment where we begin to ask these profound questions. Is God for us? Is Jesus on our side? And Jesus takes the disciples into the storm to expose that. 
to bring that out, that they could be honest. And so this is the first thing we see. We expose our deepest suspicions. But the second thing that happens in crisis is we also discover our deepest need. You see, these disciples, most of them were very experienced. They were experienced in this body of water. They knew how to sail. They were fishermen. They were competent. And so a storm, a storm that they meet, you would think that they would feel very comfortable navigating. But the water began to fill the boat, and the disciples, they were at the end of themselves. The professional fishermen who knew how to handle themselves, who probably had faced hundreds of storms because they were very common on this lake or on this sea, they would sweep down from the south, and because of the extreme drop in, uh, in, in, in the ground level, that the winds would come violently upon the sea, and there would be storms. They've been accustomed to this. But in this storm, they reach the end of themselves. They see their impotence. They see that life is out of their control. And so you have to give them credit. Where do they go? They go to Jesus with their complaint. (laughs) They ask him whether he cares, but they did go to the right place. And so their need had been exposed. And friends, this is what happens to us in those moments of crisis in our lives where everything is spinning out of control is our own weakness, our own impotence, our own fragility, our mortality. It confronts us, and we know our great need that life is not manageable on our terms and in our strength. Andy Crouch, he is an editor at Christianity Today, and several years ago he wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. It's entitled The Secular Prophet, and he was writing about the career of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computers. Listen to what he says. As remarkable as Steve Jobs is in countless ways, as a designer, an innovator, a ruthless and demanding leader, his most singular quality has been his ability to articulate a perfectly secular form of hope. Nothing exemplifies that ability more than Apple's early logo, which slapped a rainbow on the very archetype of human fallenness and failure, the bitten fruit and made it a sign of promise and progress. Hear what Crouch is saying? Steve Jobs is a secular man. He didn't share religious convictions with us. And upon his machines that he made, he emblazoned a bitten apple. Echoing back to Genesis 2 and 3. And he was saying that that sign of human fallenness that that was being overcome through technology, that all of human bitterness was being overwhelmed through progress that technology brings into humanity's life. That was Steve Jobs' deepest belief. Andy Krauss was writing this article because Steve Jobs was facing cancer, and he was stepping away from Apple, and everyone knew what it meant. It meant that there was going to be uncertainty in the company's future, And it meant that Steve Jobs, the great secular prophet who believed in technology and in technology's ability to conquer human evil and human suffering, 
that he was going to die. And he did. And friends, this is what crisis does. It exposes that our frames are dust. It exposes that we are mortal. It exposes that there are forces at work in our world that are far outside of our control. There are storms. There is death. There is disease. There are viruses. There are people. There is so much that exceeds our own power and that we have a deep need for one who is stronger than all of those powers. And this is what the disciples have in front of them. One who is stronger. John the Baptist told us that one stronger than I was coming. And this great storm results in a great peace, Mark tells us. That the mighty storm that was swamping the boat subsides in a great peace because one stronger than the storm was upon the scene. And Jesus here draws into himself all of the Old Testament traditions about the Lord being enthroned on the seas because the sea was the place of chaos and considered to be unruly, as we read in Psalm 93, but mightier than the waters is the Lord. And Jesus takes that identity and incorporates it into himself. And he makes a provocative claim about who he is. And friends, in our great need, in all of our fragility, in all of our uncertainty, in all of our mortality, this is what we need. One who is stronger. One who can conquer. One who can lay disease aside. One who is stronger than sin. One who is stronger than any storm. One who can rescue us when our boat is sinking. And so we find our deep need in the middle of crisis. And the third piece to this is that in crisis, we also reveal our misunderstandings. That crisis reveals our misunderstandings. That the disciples, they ask Jesus, don't you care? Then if you look in verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And so the disciples are asking Jesus, don't you care? And Jesus turns and asks them a question, why are you so cowardly? The word for fear here does have the echo of cowardice to it. Don't you have faith? Don't you get it? All that I've taught, all that I've said, all that I've shown you thus far, that I have power over the, the world of evil and death and disease, that I'm proclaiming that God's new world is breaking into the old broken one. Don't you get it? Don't you have faith? And friends, this is what crisis does. It exposes what we really trust. It exposes where our confidence really lies. For the disciples, did it lie in Jesus and His presence in the boat? That He could save? That He could bring them through the storm? That He had the power to do so? That He ultimately wouldn't allow them to be swamped? And friends, crisis reveals whether we trust in that Jesus. Whether we believe He is the stronger one. 
that his speech is stronger than our sin, that when God forgives us in Jesus, it does actually cancel out sin, that his speech is stronger than any disease in the world, that it's stronger than death, that God will speak a better word over your grave and raise your body. Do we trust that when we meet our crisis? Do we trust that Jesus is stronger, the Lord of life and death, that nothing can defeat him? And yet we're so much like the disciples that in our crisis we ask, where is God and does he care about us? And we drop into our self-pity. And then Jesus asks us, where is your faith? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? The great challenge for us is to trust Jesus as he executes his plan for redeeming the world, to follow him, to be willing to submit. And it's difficult because we obviously don't understand his mind. We don't understand the ways that he takes a small mustard seed and grows it into a large tree. And the twists and turns in the plot and how it unfolds are outside of our control. And God asks us to trust him as he takes us through crisis, but yet as he advances his kingdom, as he clarifies our misunderstandings, as he exposes our deep need, and he creates this great need in us to call upon Jesus for deliverance. He asks us to trust him in all of that. Several years ago, when I was a young minister, I was serving in a large church. And there were some challenges on our church staff. And there was one particular situation that came to the attention of a closed company of people that was very serious. And I had been in the unfortunate situation of, um, of, of blowing the whistle somewhat upon what was happening. And I remember on the other side of that situation, as I watched a company of people close ranks and protect to keep the peace and to keep the order, to preserve everyone's well-being, not to create a ruffle in the society around, I remember being dismayed, asking God why. So many people on the staff had suffered. They had experienced pain. People had been fired for things that they should not have been fired for. Their lives had been disrupted. It was so unjust and it was so wrong. And here it was being confronted. And here good men were watching bad things continue to happen. I remember swinging down into a pretty deep depression. And this question was just on the tip of my tongue. Do you care? Do you care that your people are perishing? Are you concerned? Because I wanted to tell God how he needed to act. I wanted to tell God when he needed to intervene. That he needed to write injustice and he needed to do it now and he needed to do it on my terms. That this was wrong. That sin was taking place in the church and it needed to be righted. And I was somewhat like Jonah under his pathetic little plant. But we'll save that for another day. And here I was 
telling God about how it needed to unfold, about how the script needed to be written, how he needed to behave. And he was asking me to trust. And friends, this is where we get lost in the midst of crisis, is we have a script and we want God to play according to those rules. We don't want to have to trust him with a wisdom that's greater than ours, one that works in a way that's mysterious to us, one that works things out far more justly than we can ever imagine. Because in this situation, that is what has happened. And friends, that's the God we serve, that he does things just and he does things right. And he works that out in his timing and we can entrust ourselves to his mysterious ways. And he wants to clarify our understanding in the midst of that process, that we know who our Lord Jesus is, the king of creation who is stronger than who is stronger than sin, stronger than death, stronger than any plot of evil, and he has the power to overcome it. And so the only question left for us is what has to happen to us? In all of our misunderstandings and all of our deep suspicions that we have about God, what kind of transformation and change has to take place within us? We find this interesting play on the word fear in our passage. Jesus asked the disciples in verse 40, why are you so afraid? As we mentioned, this is the word cowardice. Why were they so cowardly? And then in 41, it says, and they were filled with great fear. And here Mark has used a different word for the word fear. It's one that mentions more, it means more awe and reverence. And so what has to happen to us is we have to transfer from this cowardly kind of fear that's filled with self-pity and self-concern and self-focus, and it has to be replaced by a new kind of fear. It has to be displaced in our lives, this old fear and this new fear of what it means to serve the King of all creation the one who made all things and holds all things together and will redeem all things and has the power to do so because he's stronger than anything inside of that creation. And friends, so we have to go from a posture of self-concern to an external focus of being captivated by Christ and who he is and all his glory and all of his beauty as he sits at God's right hand because this is the king of creation. And perhaps the most unique fruit of the Christian life emerges around this. Because every human being who walks the face of the earth suffers anxiety, pain, and fear, lives in the fear of mortality, knowing that their lives will end. But the Christian has a unique approach to all of that anxiety, fear, and mortality, believing that Jesus is stronger. And it gives us a unique ability to suffer. It gives us a unique ability to die. It gives us a unique ability to deal with worry and anxiety. Because our king is the king of everything. He's redeemed all. And one day he'll make it right. That's the Jesus who confronts the disciples and speaks over the waters, peace, be silent. He quiets them with a word. And he speaks that same word over your own troubled souls today. 
peace, be silent. He stills it all, and he invites you to know and appreciate him and honor him and live in the fear of who he is. And so let's walk in that fear, in that kind of reverence, knowing that Jesus is stronger.